0: Kinda of be mad if I didn't at least ask, you know, like the story of, of Green Grass and High Tides forever. You know, it's just right. I remember the first time I heard that song. It was actually my, my late friend Mark who was the one I reached out to you about. He I was about twelve years old. He knew I was getting big into Leonard Skinnerd, and he told me if you like Skinnerd, you're gonna like Marshall Tucker and the Outlaws. And he brought the CDs over, and I fired up the Outlaws one, and and that first riff came out of Greengrass and High Tides with that that eerie, you know, strumming sequence, and then all of a sudden. It stops and leaves you hanging. Then it comes back. The guitar gets more intricate, and then it just accelerates to this hundred mile an hour jam with these perfectly timed lyrics that are very mysterious and and it just goes. And I'm like, this is a, a musical masterpiece. I mean, it can't be improved upon. I was just I was in love the minute I heard it. Um, so I've read a little backstory about what the song is about, but what exactly do the lyrics mean? And, and how did you guys how did you guys create that song?
1: What? we've got here is failure to communicate
0: freedom freedom Sign away my freedom
1: why this is ridiculous don't be corny brother (laughs) sure our system of free enterprise isn't perfect but before we throw it away for some imported double talk let's turn the clock back a few years to see what it's done for us with your host,
0: Mike Paul. Hey guys, before the show starts, just wanted to point out that um, Henry Paul was able to do the interview but had some technical difficulties, so last minute we had to switch to doing it with a cell phone, which I had never done before on the podcast. Um, and unfortunately, there was there's some feedback uh, interference the whole time during the interview that I was not aware of until after we got done recording, and, and it's it's unfortunate I uh, can't remove it, but it, you can still hear him clear as day, so hope you guys can forgive me, and, and please really just uh, give this a listen and, and enjoy the show. Thank you. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Paul's to the Wall. I am your host, Mike Paul, and today uh, never has the show been more appropriately named because my guest is Henry Paul, legendary guitarist from southern rock band The Outlaws, uh, frontman of the Henry Paul Band. And uh, frontman of the '90s band uh, Blackhawk. So, Henry, how you doing?
1: I'm doing fine, Mike. Uh, it's like wall-to-wall Pauls today.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, really cool that you you know you gave us this time of uh, to talk to you. And on the last episode, I gave our listeners a heads up that you'd be coming on, and, and gave a little bit of the backstory of how I got in touch with you. And uh, just want to really thank you again for your time and show you how much I respect uh, you reaching out to a fan who was in need well you know
1: when you're younger and you're trying to you know become who it is you dream of being it's a consuming endeavor but when you get to the point where I am where you kind of achieved the goals you set out to do and you can clearly see who you are and what you've become and what you aren't and what you are. I mean, I'm, I'm good with who I am and I have time. I have, I'm lucky enough to have a, you know, a group of people that follow my musical endeavors and support it and, uh, and so when I can, you know, do something for those guys within reason, you know, I mean, I do have a life, but I mean, you know, a guy over there in a really tight spot Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of compassion, I think, is it'd really be good if everybody, you know, that had this huffed up, puffed up, you know, super aggressive and angry political sort of view of things, would just notch it down and try and, you know, understand that we're all in it together, and that's how I see the Blackhawk and Outlaw and the HBD fans. You know, it's kind of like just. You know, yeah, I love you. You love me. Oh, what a happy life will be!
0: <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, as far as setting out to achieve goals. Because um, I mean, I've I've been a music junkie my whole life, uh, particularly a classic country and southern rock junkie. So this is pretty surreal to be talking to you. And um, right. you know, how yeah. do you how well, do you? You're talking to
1: the right guy if you want <laughs> surrealism.
0: <laughs> how do you go from a, a kid playing a guitar to, I mean playing in front of stadiums, songs on FM radio, opening for the biggest names in the world in the 1970s, being a rock star, which is, at that time, the ultimate status and dream of every teenage boy in the world. I mean, what, what did that feel like, and how did you get there?
1: Well, it doesn't feel like you think it will, first of all. Um, the work that comes with the effort to achieve a goal is very, uh, it is very uh, grounding. Uh, it, going back to what I said a minute ago, you're working so hard to be this person you want to be and to see your records go as far as they can go and make as much money as you can possibly make or, you know, enjoy a... Comfortable life of sorts, you know, with a family in my case. And, but I, you know, I, I remember when I was in probably late elementary school, sixth grade, my sisters and I would uh, have like talent contests at home. My parents would go out for the evening and we'd be stuck at home and we would like take turns standing on the kitchen table and lip syncing to our favorite Bobby Benton record or whatever it was mm-hmm. and I was always adamantly insistent that I won the contest and <laughs> you know I, I I think that work ethic you have to be lucky but I think there's I think the saying that where preparation meets opportunity resides luck sure and so as we set out to become players in the game of the Allman Brothers the Marshall Tucker Band the Charlie Daniels Band and the Leonard Skinner Band to become members of that fraternal order of musical groups took a certain amount of being able to see it and then Initiating the necessary effort to be it. And so it came from songwriting to holding on to the original character of your musical personality and not caving into the top 40 uh, opportunity that would put more money in your pocket but would render you sort of out of that game so you had to continue to see the wisdom in writing your own music and sacrificing up front for the bigger reward right and so you know I was in a band of extremely talented people and And I was somewhat the band leader, just the, I think I was by a year, a year and a half, the oldest member of the band. And I just had a sense of organizational skill to do the things that I saw being done and to replicate them. If somebody handed me a press kit and I open it up and I see a photograph and I see a bio, and, you know, then I would go home and I would apply myself to creating a bio and organize a photo shoot and, uh, uh, you know, kind of imitate. Saw out there as professionalism, and and again, I mean, with, with the, there were five really talented people in the Outlaws. I mean, we were writing and playing at an advanced level in comparison in comparison to our peer group. For sure. So, so we knew that we had the mojo to get it done. We just had to, you know, and, you know, relationships were very important. You know, I forged a relationship with a guy who was able to piece together a tour through the Midwest. And for the first time that we ever got out of Tampa as a group to go, quote unquote, on the road, he was able to do that. And on that trip, we opened for Leonard Skinner two nights in Nashville and Van Sant went away from the gig and told his manager how, what a great band we were and so our manager and Leonard Skinner's manager formed a partnership and because of his weighted influence in the music business we were able to get a record deal Wow! so I mean it was just like you can say luck but I mean you had to orchestrate it
0: Oh, of course. And
1: then and then when you go to open for Leonard Skinner for two nights you 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 gotta be great. I mean, why would Ronnie go away from the gig and say, Wow, I just saw a band that blew my doors off and you know, and they have themselves a a free bird. Right. Making reference to greengrass. So So you know, and that once once you get that, you know, if Clive Davis comes down and sees the band and waves his pontifical orb, you know, or, you know, and, you know, his magic wand, and then, spends a million dollars, promoting you, well, then, at that point, you're in the game, once you get in the game, you gotta try and stay in the game, you know, you have to, continue to write, write write songs, and put on a good show every night, try and get along with your coworkers, and, not, you know, do something stupid. There were a, quite a bit of stupid things done, but I mean, they weren't unusually stupid. They were typically dumb. Right. And and so when I left the band in '77, I had relationships with people. Charlie Daniels, manager, and I had become friends, and he was a fan and believed in me and the head of A&R from Arista moved over to Atlantic as the executive vice president and funded my demo sessions and signed me to Atlantic so I went from Arista to Atlantic as a, on two different major labels you know with, with a band and a high profile manager and, you know Grey Ghost was a big record for us and we toured and suddenly I was on my own and then the name, my name, became sort of a common industry sort of name. And I wasn't just a member of a group. I was the namesake for the band. So that really helped me establish an identity. And And you learn from other people. You learn if you hang around Charlie Daniels or, at that time, Tommy Caldwell from the Marshall Tucker Band, and you watch how they lead their band and what their personality a sort of manifests itself, how it, how leadership becomes something more than just knowing where you're going. It's, it's dealing with people in a way that inspire them to help you. And that was a, a really big part for me. I mean, I had always been a good band leader and I felt like I always was a good judge of talent and, uh, and my instincts were pretty good, and and I busted my ass all the time, you know, writing and just doing things that I knew would enhance the band's chances. Sure. Yeah, I, it's...
0: Uh, uh, oh, sorry, I was going to say, the one thing you, you said that I kind of wanted to expand upon was um, as far as, like, the writing and, and how genuine the music is, and that's, that's what I really love about classic country and, and southern rock in general is... A lot of the lyrics are very autobiographical. Um, you know, Leonard Skinner had a ton of that. Where um, you know, Van Zant had a way of kind of talking to the common man about what it was like to be in his status and, and how it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. You know, he mm-hmm. he talked about substance abuse and women of the road and getting mismanaged by record labels. And it was kind of nice. like they got everything they dreamed of at such a young age, but it wasn't a utopia, and he made that very clear.
1: Right. Well. You know, there's a number of different styles of writing. You know, uh, Ronnie was a very literal writer. He wasn't a poetic character in a way. He had a he had a real knack, a very significant talent for you know taking his personal set of circumstances and challenging the world with it taking swipes at big time rock stars and you know the Neil Young line and the t-shirts that he wore and just the kind of the cocky you know screw everybody that doesn't love everything I do you know that kind of attitude it was very played very significantly into his and in the, in the case of it, his the band he was in it played into their image You know, all all those bands are so different. The dynamic of of the groups themselves. Leonard Skinner was very much Ronnie's band. Marshall Tucker was, you know, a completely different band from the standpoint of their personality. They weren't as, it wasn't exactly a democracy, but there was a little bit more, I thought, effort going in by all the members of the band to be, you know, polite and thoughtful and genuine. Uh, The Allman Brothers were way up there, very highly revered. And, uh, you know, the Dickie Betts personality and then Chuck LaBelle joining the band. and The original band of Dwayne and Dickie and Greg and Butch. Mary and JMO was was the mold by which we all sort of imitated mm-hmm. and their use of at that time the Confederate flag was not had not become a, a symbol of hate so much as it was more of a, a geographical statement right you know like the South, the rebels the you know it it never occurred to me at that time that it was hurtful to a black person sure I just I just didn't think of it in those terms I was too focused on being white from the south and being in a rock band and being a rebel and you know like whoever Jesse James Johnny Huma you name them uh And so, you know, being a part of that society of bands and the camaraderie of it was so enormously significant to us personally. And, uh, you know, at one point, I, I left the band and I came back in the early eighties to rejoin the outlaws and stayed in the band. I cut a record with Huey on CBS and it was clear that Southern rock was not going to reclaim its rightful place of popularity. It was a musical moment that had come and gone. Right. And so in the late eighties, I decided, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was at the Florida state fair and I was walking through the midway with my then wife and children. And Winona, or well not Winona, but the juds were the opening act for Ronnie Millsap that day at the Florida State Fair. And I was, as I walked by the, the grandstand where people were in line waiting to get in, I was looking at these people and I thought those people look like my fans. Those people look like fans of the band I've been in and we can't find them anywhere, but there they are. Hmm. And so I decided I was going to go to Nashville and I had always loved country and I was more or less perceived as the country music influence in the outlaws and the Henry Paul band and so I declared that I was going to go to Nashville and I was going to become a country singer because I loved it. And one of my early goals in music was to try and initiate, you know, try and not initiate, but try and move country music into the popular musical landscape, much like the Eagles did or Poco or, you know, going back to the Alma Brothers or whoever. So... So going to Nashville, to me, was a, was a very natural move. All I had to do was declare that I was gonna go and do it, and so I did. So I drove up there, and I, it was a 700 mile trip one way, and I'd stay for a week, and my manager had a house up there, and I'd stay with him, and I'd write four or five songs, and I'd come home, and I'd go up in my studio and demo them, back and forth. A week in Nashville, a week at home, you know, A Week in Nashville, Two Weeks Home. And I did that for a year and compiled a catalog of songs. And my manager was playing my stuff to Tim Dubois, who was the head, the new head of Arista Records, Nashville. And he loved my voice and he loved the outlaws and he thought I was, you know, physically, uh... Ah! my (laughs) five-year-old. That's funny. That's awesome. Watch this. Here's how we load it. Oh, you blow it up? Oh, nice. Watch it. Woo! What a cool toy.
0: <laughs> I love the <that> feeling.
1: <laughs> but it, 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 Tim, the head of the label, said, "Look, Hank, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign you my label. I don't know exactly how this is gonna play out, but I am going. I'm committing to you that I'm gonna sign you to Arista." So I was thrilled. He said, "Do you want a pub- publishing deal?" I said, "Yeah. I mean, my income was, you know, spotty, and I was between bands, and things were a little stressful. And so I signed with EMI Music as a songwriter, and I got a, a fairly substantial annual check, and it smoothed out everything in my life, personally and economically, and uh, and." Blackhawk became, you know, was born of that commitment from Tim and his relationship as a songwriter with Dave Robbins and Van Stevenson. Tim and Dave and Van had written a number of songs together for the group Restless Heart, and Tim was Restless Heart's producer, so gee whiz, guess what? I'm their producer and I'm going to write these songs and I'm going to love them and cut them on the band and they're going to have hits and I'm going to do well as a writer. <laughs> That's kind of how Nashville worked. Sure. And so when Tim asked me if I'd consider being a part of that trio, being the lead singer with Dave and Dan, I said, yeah, I've been writing with Dan, especially at that point. And I knew Dave and I said, for sure, you know. So we all it and wrote a bunch of songs and went in and recorded them. And the first record sold a couple, two, three million copies. Wow. You know, so now I've gone from the Outlaws, to the Henry Paul band back to the Outlaws, to Nashville. And, and it all came from instincts, being prepared, being in good physical and mental health, you know, just being ready, you know, and looking like a duck and quacking like one, and showing everybody your web feet. <laughs> By the time you know you were out there on the radio and doing well, and, and let me just say the Blackhawk thing—I was 43 when I signed with Arista the, the second time—and along with Ronnie Dunn and Hal Hal Ketchum. I was one of the older guys in the nineties country wave. Those three guys were, we were all very closely chronologically the same age that would never happen today. Right. Ever. So, so people kind of made decisions based on talent and we were in the right place at the right time with the right racket and, Lo and behold, Blackhawk became a hit band, and I bought a '65 Stingray that I always wanted when I was in high school and couldn't afford. And, Very cool. You know, and that's about all I—I didn't—I never had any real monetary uh, goals. I was good with money, but I was never, you know, in it for that.
0: Sure. No, and that, that shows. I mean, I think the best artists in any industry are the ones who are doing it purely out of passion um, rather than trying to, uh, you know, get status or, or, or money um, off of the trade. So that's clearly really shows through your work. Um, I know we're uh, <clears throat> pushing up against a half hour and uh, you're limited for time. So, the you know, I think the listeners would kind of be mad if I didn't at least ask, You know, like the story of of Greengrass and High Tides Forever, you know, it's just, I remember the first time I heard that song, it was actually my my late friend, Mark, who was the one I reached out to you about, he, I was about 12 years old, he knew I was getting big into Leonard Skynyrd, and he told me, if you like Skynyrd, you're gonna like Marshall Tucker and the Outlaws, and he brought the CDs over, and I fired up the Outlaws one, and and that first riff came out of Greengrass and High Tides, with that, that eerie, you know, strumming sequence, and then all of a sudden... It stops and leaves you hanging. Then it comes back. The guitar gets more intricate, and then it just accelerates to this hundred mile an hour jam with these perfectly timed lyrics that are very mysterious and right. and it just goes. And I'm like, this is a, a musical masterpiece. I mean, it can't be improved upon. I was just I was in love the minute I heard it. Um, so I've read a little backstory about what the song about, but w- what exactly do the lyrics mean? And, and how would you guys how would you guys create that song?
1: Well there was a guy that hung around with the band He was kind of like a roadie but he was more of a a brainy kind of guy and at that time going back to when the song was written the Rolling Stones had a greatest hits out called High Tides and Green Grass and from what I gather the song was inverted from high tides and green grass to green grass and high tides and it was written lyrically about Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison. Now if you listen to the chorus, Green Grass and High Tides Forever, Castles of Stone, Soul and Glory, Lost Faces say we adore you as kings and queens bow and play for you. So, you know, it's it's clearly, it's 100% pointed at these musical personalities and their early demise and the uh, emotional investment into what they represented as artists. And... It's an excellent comparison to uh, like to a Leonard Skinner lyric like give me three steps. Right. Give me three steps Mr. Give me three steps towards the door. You know hey there fellow with your hair colored yellow. You shitting me? I mean (laughs) blue collar yeah but like totally a different thing than in a place you only dream of you know where your soul is always free silver stages golden curtains fill my head plain as can be I mean hey there fellow with your hair colored yellow (laughs) (laughs) so you can see like from a poetic standpoint you know the bands were significantly different right, and And the majestic qualities of green grass compared to, and I'm not running Skinner down, they just were different. Of course. And they resonated with people in a way that was broad and far more popular than the outlaws. Far more popular. But Bob Dylan had a famous quote, he said, never confuse popular with good, which... (laughs) Again, I'm not trying to say we were better than Leonard Skinner, but honestly, I, no money withstanding, no economic, no career profile goals withstanding. I would choose to be in the Outlaws every single day of the week and twice on Sunday and never aspire, you know, to be someone other than who I am or what we did.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I mean...
1: so, so that was kind of the, you know, there was a song on the band's second album called Girl From Ohio, you know. It's, it's winter in my consciousness, the dew has turned to frost. Some will win and some will lose and some have won and lost. You know, you can feel the time between us now pulling us apart. If I could get in touch somehow, we could make another start. But it, was, it was, there was more of an effort poetically. To, to write songs in a former fashion that we were, you know, trying to compete maybe with Don Henley and Glenn Frey, or maybe Neil Young and Stephen Stills, or David Crosby or Roger McGuinn, you know, to where, you know, you had this pop sensible sense of Good or not good enough, and you always worked at trying to be as good as those people, you know. Whether it was Dan Vogelberg or Gordon Lightfoot or whoever, Bob freaking Dylan, you
0: know. Right. Those are all so, all names I know and love very well.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and that was that was how we sort of measured our own effort, and that was what we used as a criteria to judge good and acceptable and not.
0: Right. That's very cool. Yeah, we're, we're just at the half hour mark, so I know you're, you're short on time. But um, anything else you want to close on? Any? Uh, are you guys planning on doing any more touring or returning back to that, or is it still kind of up in the air? Yeah,
1: we're turning back. We get we start back in June. Oh, cool. And our year is jam packed. Uh, Dave and I are in the studio now recording a new Blackhawk record, studio album, and. I can tell you this. I haven't mentioned this to anyone, but I'll I'll tell you since we're such good friends, Mikey. (laughs) um, I went back into the archives of songs that I wrote and recorded with Dave and Dan very early in our career. And there were like just a number of really songs that we wrote and never recorded and we had full band demos on them and we sang beautifully on it and so I went back and gathered up all the two inch tape I had out of my barn and I took it to a studio who specializes in renovating old masters recorded on two inch tape and I've got like 30 sides of Dave and I and band wow and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Dave and I are going to choose probably eight or nine of the best songs that Dave and I and Band wrote early on in our career and didn't record. And then there's probably four or five new things that we want to record, and we're going to release a new Blackhawk record featuring basically Dave and I and Band.
0: Wow, that's, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's That's really cool. exciting, and uh, we're not on a major label, and, you know, it'll go largely unnoticed. But but for the fans, for the people that love Blackhawk, I just know they're going to absolutely love you and and I and Dave sing again. Oh, for sure.
0: I know I will. That's so cool. Well, Henry, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to check out your, your touring schedule. And if you get anywhere near Chicago or Madison, hopefully we can uh, make it work. I'd like to get out and see you guys.
1: Yeah, undoubtedly we will. And uh, thanks for your uh, love of music and your uh, appreciation and uh, affection for our music.
0: Oh, of course. Thanks. Thank you so much, Henry. Take care.
1: All right, man. Talk to you later, right. man.
0: Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.